Good morning. Glad you guys are here for our second service, and it will be our last second service. Praise God. Isn't that exciting? Some of you guys are like, oh, I don't know. I'm very excited. I do want to say this to you. I think um, uh, it's very important for us to recognize that as we go back to one service, we have this sense that um, somehow more people in a room create a dynamic and we feel an energy uh, off of that. And, and to some degree, um, there is a feeling of, a, of something that happens in a, a room full of people and us being broken into two services, uh, that lacks. But I want to say something to you that I think is very important this morning. Um, we don't believe from a Christian worldview that numerically speaking, there is greater energy or lesser energy with more people or less people. That's witchcraft. Right? We need to understand that whether we're alone in this room or whether we are in a room full of thousands of people because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place for our sin and His sending of the Holy Spirit, whether I'm by myself worshiping the Lord or whether we are gathered in thousands, He is no more present in that room of thousands than with me by myself. And so this idea of energy, more or less, because of numbers of people, is a psychological creation. It's something we've done out of some type of expectation uh, of something, and it's just not a reality. The truth of the matter is, in the crazy places I've had the privilege of working around this world, I've been with few numbers of people where the Spirit of God moves in power because of the gospel, not because of numbers of people gathered. And so as we come back to one service, I'm excited for that. That's a good thing. It looks good. It feels good. But it's no more powerful than this moment right here. So let's not look past this time and what God wants to do in and through us as we gather. We've been studying through and are going to continue to study about the church and what a healthy New Testament church looks like. And we've paused on evangelism and, and put the microscope on top of evangelism to begin to understand this work. And so today we're going to take that a little further into some really nuts and bolts things. So I want you to grab your phone. If you have a smart device, I want you to open it up and go to your app store, whatever you use, whether it's uh, whether you use an Apple product or some other inferior product, whatever you like to use. I'm just kidding. Just totally kidding. And I want you to Type in Life on Mission, and this little app's going to pop up with three circles and arrows pointing to those circles. I want you to open that. It's a fantastic little tool to help you do what we're going to talk about today. We're not going to take our time to walk through it. We're going to look at the Bible and what the Bible teaches our message needs to be. But this little app is going to help you as you share the good news with folks who need to hear it, walk through this message that we're going to talk about today. It's a fantastic tool. And if you think it's too cheesy to use, then I, by all means, invite you, Charles Spurgeon, to be in a fantastic evangelist and do whatever's working for you. But it's a great instrument. I like it. It's a great tool. Use it as it benefits the work. Today, we're going to focus on the proclaiming part of this good news, this message that is so important that we preach. I want you to note, and I think this is very important that we say this this morning, the meta-narrative of the gospel is the absolute framework of the good news of the kingdom of God. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those four big categories form the framework of what it is to think and act Christianly in our world. 
inside that meta narrative, that framework of thinking and interpreting the world around us, the work of redemption is where the good news, the evangelism, the good news of the kingdom is located, where we preach it from this work of redemption, this, this, this work that God has taken upon himself to fix what went haywire in creation and the fall. And so understand that this work of the gospel is located inside a framework of thinking that helps us to think Christianly about absolutely everything. It's not an isolated message, but the message of the gospel is located in the framework of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, to help us locate this message that we need to speak, that we need to communicate, this evangelistic effort that we need to bring to the table. Remember, disciple-making is the entire process, right? Jesus taught us to go make disciples, and in that disciple-making process of preaching the good news and teaching people to observe everything Jesus has commanded, the work of evangelism happens inside that process. Today we're focused on evangelism the message that we preach. And Paul's going to help us see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. But Paul is going to lead into that passage with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in particular, verse 18 to 31, as to why he's going to approach his evangelistic ministry at Corinth the way he does, which is super focused down on the primary truth of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And he's going to say it like this in summary in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, listen to this, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now pause for a moment. In the wisdom of God, God decreed that mankind would not know God through wisdom. Meaning that we can't know God redemptively through any other means and by what Paul is about to teach us. So he says... Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, Paul's not demeaning wisdom. There is wisdom in the Bible that is God's wisdom, but the world, the dark kingdom that stands opposed to the kingdom of God, has its own manner of wisdom. And Paul will call it in Colossians chapter 2, a wisdom, a philosophy that's not according to Christ. So Paul's not demeaning godly wisdom. In fact, in chapter 2 verse 6 to 16 Paul's going to tell us in this work of salvation that God does through the gospel he gives us the very mind of Christ and so there is godly wisdom to be had but God doesn't save through wisdom he saves by another means and Paul is going to tell us what that is so he wants them to know God's not saving through wisdom he decreed we don't get to know him through wisdom but he does decree we know him and he does it through a specific message God has determined to save by faith, given from a preached message of Jesus' death on a Roman cross, substituted for sinners to pay the penalty for sin. And that's what Paul's going to teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. So if you've got a Bible, flip there. I'm going to read it. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. I'm going to read it for you. You can look along if you have one. And let's see what Paul tells us is the message by which we get to know God. Here's what he says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Wow. So what do we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, about evangelism? This message that we are to speak, proclaim, that God has chosen to use as the instrument by which He brings the work of redemption to the world. Well, the first truth we're going to learn in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5 is this. Paul is bearing witness to God's story. Paul is bearing witness to the testimony of God. Notice verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul's not saying he didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God. He said he didn't come proclaiming that testimony with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, Paul was coming sharing the story of who God is. Paul is intentionally placing the work of Jesus inside this meta-narrative that is so vital that we understand. The good news of the gospel is not an isolated message. It is intimately and intricately connected to the worldview that the Bible gives us of who God is and what God is doing in the world. And Paul absolutely wants them to know he's bearing witness to the story of God. Now, this is important. It's important because our task in evangelism is to bear witness to this worldview of who God is, how he defines himself, what his name is, and what he is doing in the world. We're bearing witness to the testimony of God. And I want to say this to you. I posted this a few weeks ago on the blog. I linked to a podcast that I got a privilege to be interviewed for by a friend of mine. And it is in a setting where they wanted me to share my Christian story for spiritual context, of which most of the people listening and participating in this are not Christians. And what I want you to do is I want you to go listen to how I did that in the public square. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I want to encourage you to just go do that. Rip it off. Do just like I did. I have brought into our fellowship my friend Nadim Hamid, who is the imam of the local mosque, because I want to model for you how to engage people from other faiths. I want you to see how in the public square we highlight Jesus. We lift up our distinctions. We don't pretend we believe the same things because we don't. We don't pretend we have the same books. We don't. We highlight our distinctions. We put Jesus on display and we proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because because that's how we engage with the gospel. And so we come bearing witness to the story of God in the public square. It is our task. And Paul said, I came doing that and I didn't do it with superior wisdom. I came bearing witness to the testimony of God. So the first truth we learn is Paul was bearing witness to God's story. And we likewise must bear witness. The second truth we learn we find in verse 2. And it's this. Paul made up his mind to know nothing but Jesus and his crucifixion. Isn't verse 2? For I decided, Paul determined, he made it his aim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Paul's day, orators followed well-established traditions and conventions when they entered a city. And they were expected to give 
flowery speeches in praise of the city and their own personal achievements. And they did this in order to establish their reputation and reap financial rewards as spiritual, political, and philosophical orators who brought various teachings from around the world to particularly the rich people who could pay them for what they brought to the public square. It's almost as if it's an old school version of podcasts. Super talented people, super talented speakers, preachers of various philosophies would come into a city and they had fantastic oratory skills and they were able to wow people with their words and the message that they brought. And this is the context in which Paul comes preaching this good news. And Paul said, while I was with you, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen to me very carefully. Paul had to intentionally shun various skills and tools for a very particular reason. So that, and we're going to get to it in verse 5. But he had to shun those tools for a very specific reason so that he could focus on the one message that they had to get and could not afford to miss. And it was Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it makes us ask the question who is Jesus? And what is his crucifixion? This is the message we have to get to. And Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the powerful message. This is the message that will save, right? It's not the oratory skills. It's not the flowery speech. It's not the good communication. It is the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. So who is Jesus? Well, I've got a list of things here in my notes. You can see these. They're on the blog mitchjolly.com under today's post. And I just want to run through this quick list and I encourage you to read your Bible and go mine these things out for yourselves. They are there in the text. If you've been here long enough, we've taught you how to read the whole Bible through the lens of the eye of Jesus Christ so that from Genesis to Revelation, you can see Jesus and his eternal work in the text. So who is Jesus? Well, first, Jesus is the God-man. Big theological term, the hypostatic union. This beautiful, mysterious thing that all God, all man, united in one person, come into the world, taking on flesh, to live among us, John 1, to show us the glory of God, Jesus the God-man. Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, come to accomplish a particular work. Jesus, the Son of God, the faithful and obedient Israel. When Jesus comes and calls himself the Son of God, Jesus is drawing on the text that tells us Jacob was called God's son. Israel, my people, my son. When Jesus comes and he declares himself to be the son of God, Jesus is saying, I am the faithful and obedient Israel. So that all the promises, Acts 13, 32, all the promises God has made in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in raising Jesus from the dead. Meaning there's nothing in the text left to be fulfilled. Jesus fulfills it all. He's the son of God, the faithful and obedient Israel. We're not waiting for a strip of land to come under some political rule. That rule has already come in Jesus. He's the Son of God. He is the one who has come. He is the faithfulness of God put on display. We learn He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the promised one like Moses who would speak the word of God faithfully. He's the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and destroy the curse of sin. 
He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have gone to our own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is that faithful servant that God the Father put forward to bear the sin of many. He's the Passover lamb who purchases the people of God from the slavery of sin. Jesus is all those and a million more. John said at the end of his writing, if we were to write books that would tell you all the mysteries and glories of Christ, the world could not contain them. That's who Jesus is. But what did Jesus do? Paul said, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What is Jesus' crucifixion? We learn in Isaiah 52 and 53 that God the Father put Jesus to death as the payment for sin. The Romans didn't ultimately put Jesus to death. The Romans were the instrument by which God the Father put Jesus to death. Why did God the Father do that? Because the payment of sin was God the Father's idea. Jesus is the instrument by which the idea is implemented and the Holy Spirit is the one who proclaims it to the nations through our preaching of the gospel. This Trinitarian reality of the God of the Bible. God the Father put Jesus to death as payment for the sin of the world. Jesus is substituted on the cross in our place for our sin. And sin, therefore, is paid for past, present, and future through the sacrifice of Himself. And at some point today... You need to go read Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. If you want a nice summary of the work of the cross, you will get it there. Through the sacrifice of himself, Jesus Christ has taken all of the sin of the world and he has executed righteousness and he has died in our place for our sin so that through the sacrifice of himself, he has made perfect forever those who have faith in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Absolutely glorious. And Jesus will learn in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, didn't enter into a temple made by human hands, but when he died and was buried and he rose, he entered into heaven itself and he didn't come into that place with the blood of goats and calves and bulls, but he entered by his own blood. And he laid down his blood for us and by the sacrifice of himself he has paid for my sin and yours past present and future so that through repentance and faith we get all of it wiped out glory right that's the work of the cross jesus identity and his work is our evangelistic strategy there is no other strategy this little tool is a tool. It's not a strategy. The strategy is the good news of Jesus and his work. And if that message stays out of the public square, listen, no one is going to be saved because God has decreed, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, that through wisdom, he decreed that man don't get to know God through wisdom, but they get to know God through the message we preach. What's the message? It's the message of Jesus and his work on the cross. That is our evangelistic strategy. Third, Paul's circumstance is either chosen or inflicted. Listen to verse 3. His circumstance is either chosen or inflicted. We don't really know why this was the case. He doesn't tell us. We just learned that, as he says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul's circumstance is either chosen or inflicted, our weakness, fear, and trembling, and no superior skills to cover up his circumstances. The only star of Paul's message is Jesus. That's it. Whatever the circumstances happen to be, 
The star of the show was none other than Jesus. Our evangelism does not have to possess anything mankind believes to be superior to lend credence to Jesus. Jesus, his person, his work needs no help. The message is powerful all by itself. Therefore, there is no perfect situation or timing for gospel sharing. Paul found himself in weakness, fear, and trembling. And he determined he would only preach Jesus, his identity, and his work. And we got the church at Corinth from it. You're going to find yourself in situations where the timing's never right. Because we live in a spiritual world that is really filled with the enemy who wants to come after us and fight against us. And there will be all manner of impediments. But when you get the shot, you have to take the shot. When you get the opportunity to speak of Jesus' identity and what he did, take the shot. Take every golden opportunity to have to put that powerful message into the ears of people because that is the only message that will transform people. It's the only message that will take a dead heart to life and blind eyes to sight. Number four, we see in verse one and verse four that Paul was empowered by the creator spirit of God, not a plausible apologetic. We saw that he came bearing this testimony of God not with superior skills. And then in verse 4, and my speech, his words, and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom. This isn't Mythbusters. Je- Jesus' message is not a message that is empirically plausible. In other words, what Paul is saying here, he's not engaging in, in a defense of the identity of Jesus and his work, he's not defending it, he's unleashing it. Listen, that's not to demean the discipline of defending the gospel. There is a place in academia for defending the validity of the Christian message. But the defense of the message will never save anyone. It doesn't have power to save. Because remember, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, God deemed, He decreed that through wisdom man don't get to know God. Man only gets to know God through the preached person and work of Jesus Christ. So we learn here that his speech, his message were not implausible words of wisdom. He didn't come with an empirical defense of the work of Christ, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and power. Paul was empowered by the Creator Holy Spirit of God, not some plausible argument for Jesus. The literal rendering here is by the Spirit's power. In other words, when Paul proclaiming Jesus' person and his work, there was power from the Holy Spirit to do the task. And Jesus promised us that would be the case. John 14, 15, and 16 is the most concentrated place in your Bible you're going to learn about the Holy Spirit and His mission. And the Holy Spirit's mission is to bear witness to Jesus and His work. So that as we proclaim Jesus, Holy Spirit puts power on display as He takes dead people to life and blindness to sight because that's what He does. So Paul said, I didn't come with an apologetic defense. I came to put on display for you Jesus and His work. And what you saw is the power of God put on display as the Holy Spirit did what Jesus Jesus said he would do. The effect of the preaching came from God and for God's purposes, 
by the Spirit. It was not generated by man's wisdom for any kind of elicited response. When we elicit response with our good words and our powerful displays of something to consume, people's faith, we're going to learn on verse, in verse 5, rests in the wrong place and isn't a genuine faith. So Paul said, this message came by the power of the Holy Spirit. In 5, why not use tried and true communication skills that move people? Why not? why not? Why not just use superior oratory skills? Why be transparent about oneself and not cover up our weaknesses, our fears, and our trembling so as to appear talented, right? That sounds like a good thing. We don't want people to think Jesus is weak. So if they see my weakness, they'll think Jesus is weak and might not believe. So why not practice good oratory skills and cover up who we really are? Verse 5 tells us, So that, purpose clause, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that those who believe might have their faith rest completely on Jesus. Why have I shared painfully embarrassing truths about myself to you over the years and not pretend to be something that I am not? The reason? So that your faith may rest in Jesus alone and not any perceived skill or strength in me. Because there is none. The danger of using too much pop preaching and music is that attracting, we can attract fans who elevate the preacher and elevate the worship leader and they follow the preacher and they follow the worship leader. In fact, that's going to be a problem with the Corinthians. We learn in Paul's words that some follow Peter, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, and some actually follow Jesus. Because some think Apollos is a better preacher, and some think Peter has more power because he was closer to Jesus. And, and, and they've turned this thing into who's the better communicator? Who's the flashier one? The danger of using too much pop preaching and too much popular stuff is we attract fans who elevate the preacher and the worship leader or whatever else rather than Jesus. And this results in misplaced faith. I fear we have generations who've placed their faith in good preaching skills and good-looking preachers and good-looking teachers and emotional responses to awesome music to the point that when the high wears off, there's nothing left but a fake faith that diminishes as the emotive high wears off. If our faith can't survive an old city, old country, faithful, uneducated preacher, and old school music that is often overlooked because it can't keep up with the Christian's economically induced market for consumption, then it's misplaced and it will not stand when we stand before Jesus to give account. My hope, your hope, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So finally, how do we obey? How do we obey this passage today? Number one, we have to be on mission. We have to live life on mission. Notice what Paul said in verse 1 of chapter 2. And when I came to you, brothers, 
when I came to you. It's easy to look over the fact that Paul came to them. Paul was sent from the church at Antioch on mission. They were worshiping, fasting, and the Spirit said, set Barnabas and Paul aside for me. I'm going to send them on mission. So they went. They went on mission. In fact, Antioch got there in chapter 11 of Acts because some unnamed people from the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 found their way to Antioch, their unnamed disciples, and they preached the good news. And people in Antioch believed, and they started gathering. And when they gathered, they heard word that the Gentiles believed up in Antioch, and they sent Barnabas, and Barnabas found that there were disciples gathered. And he went and found Paul, and they spent time there discipling them. And as they worshiped, the Lord said, set Barnabas and Saul aside, and I'm going to send them. They got sent from Acts because people were sent preaching the good news. That's amazing. Isn't that awesome? So we can't overlook the fact that he was living on mission. There's a mission to be engaged. There's a going that has to be done. And so they were going, and as he came to them, he preached Jesus and his message. We have to live on mission. We say at the end of every service, three of us, you are sent. That's on purpose. We want you to hear. When you leave this place, you are sent on purpose mission to get Jesus' person and his work in the public square. Number two, we have to be sold out to bearing witness to God's story. Paul came bearing witness to the story, the testimony of God. We have to know and operate from the meta-narrative of the good news of Jesus, who he is. We have to learn to think Christianly. You hear this enough, and I know you get sick of hearing it. And if you're new to Three Rivers, i got to say it so that you can hear it. You need to be a Bible student. doesn't require an advanced degree just requires your ability to either listen to it on an app or read it from a physical Bible. And grab one of the Bible reading plans on our website. It'll help you get through the Bible in a year in about 15 minutes a day. It's a disciplined way to approach reading the Scriptures because the key to learning how to think the, st- the testimony and story of God is reading the story of God in the Bible that tells us who He is and what He's come to do and how this evangelistic message is located in the testimony of God. And as we read our Bibles, we make sense of them. We are equipped to go. So we have to be sold out to the reality that we have a call to bear witness to God's story in the public square. Third, we have to determine... We won't use anything to convince anyone except the good news. We have to determine we're not going to use anything to convince anyone except the good news. This little app that I had you download is not going to convince anybody. It's just a tool to get you to this message. It's a visual to show people there's a sin problem. There's creation. God created. There's the fall. There's a sin problem. Everything in the world broke. And this is why everything is broken. This is why we feel it, sense it, and know it. And then there's the work of redemption where this evangelistic message is located in Jesus' person and His work. And in repentance and faith, He transforms, saves, and He brings about a new creation. The restoration of all things. We get reconciled back to God. It's a tool. It's not an apologetic. But we have to determine we're not going to use anything but the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We use the tool, but the tool is only going to get us to the message. Listen, when you get a chance to speak the good news, you don't have to prove it. You don't have to prove it. You may need to use the tool of defense of the gospel somewhere down the line, but the gospel doesn't need to be proven to be effective. It just doesn't. It doesn't. The coolest thing you're ever going to experience is seeing the powerful message take eyes that are cold and dead and bring them to life. 
Your faith will be built as you watch that happen. And if that has never happened for you, oh, I pray you take that opportunity to get the gospel in somebody's ears and watch the supernatural creator, spirit of God, make somebody alive. It's the coolest miracle on the planet. Fourth, we have to be able to proclaim the good news. We have to be able to tell this story. You know enough because you're here. And chances are you're here because you've experienced Jesus. He saved you, transformed you. If He saved you, you know enough to introduce somebody else. You've heard enough today now to go and just simply mimic that story and tell it because the story is powerful in and of itself. We have to be able to proclaim the good news. Tell this story of what God has done in Jesus' person and His work. And then finally, we need to believe that our evangelistic effort is as much worship as singing to the Lord. Singing to the Lord is commanded biblically, and we're going to do that in obedience in just a moment. But you need to also understand that when you have a chance to share the good news of Jesus' person and His work, it is as much worship as us corporately singing together. And God will honor it, and He will bless it. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to sing to the Lord. And as we worship the Lord, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to put people on your mind. He's going to give you opportunity to take that shot of getting Jesus' person and His work into the public square so people can hear and be saved. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that You would do a work in our city of transformation. This morning, there's been enough good news shared that if one has heard and Holy Spirit has made effective, they can be brought from death to life, from blindness to sight. And Lord, I ask that you would do that even now. That wherever this would happen to land today, in Rome, Floyd County, Georgia, and even some of the crazy global places this is getting listened to, that you would do a work of transformation through Jesus' person and his work on the cross in our place for our sin. Pray that you would encourage your people this morning through that gospel message to be reminded of your love for them, that you count them not guilty in Christ. Then, Father, I pray that you would mobilize and send your people to our city, our state, our nation, and the world. Today, call out for your purposes, your people, to fill the way cities, that they would be holy, and that those cities would know that you are the Lord. Would you be pleased to do that? We pray in Jesus' name.